Section 3 of The Elements of Botany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Elements of Botany by William Ruschenberger. Lesson 3, Part 1. Lesson 3. Mechanism of the Absorption and Ascent of the Sap. Ascending Sap. Exhalation respiration, leaves, parts of leaves, their structure, shape, and position, stipules, tendrils, examples of the forms of simple and compound leaves, exhalation, respiration, distribution of the nutritive juices, descending sap, secretions, excretions, succession of crops, proper juices, lignin, fecula, Growth of plants, grafting, effects of the seasons on the nutrition of plants, the age of plants. Mechanism of the absorption and ascent of the sap. 1. It is by the process of absorption that plants derive from the soil in which they are fixed the nutritive matters necessary for their growth and the maintenance of their existence. 2. The nutritive matters to be pumped up in this manner must necessarily be in a fluid state. In the solid form, they could not be absorbed. And it is, in fact, water holding various substances in solution that thus penetrates the plant and serves for its nourishment. 3. It is chiefly, and sometimes exclusively, by the extremity of the roots that this operation is effected. The epidermis, which covers almost the whole plant, in general offers obstacles to the passage of these liquids. But the spongioles, as we have already seen, are unprovided with this envelope, and constitute a cellular tissue which gives a ready passage to water. For this reason, we must consider these spongioles as the chief organs of absorption. 4. Some plants also absorb by the leaves, and when the stem of a plant is cut across, its internal tissue being thus laid bare, also pumps up water in which it may be placed. But in the ordinary state of a plant, these cases are exceptions, and the absorption of liquids is carried on in the most active manner by the spongioles. 5. It has been remarked that water, rendered thick and viscid by the presence of foreign substances, was absorbed very slowly and with difficulty. But when its fluidity is not diminished by matters that it holds in solution, it penetrates vegetables just as if it were pure. Now, the water which reaches the roots of plants always holds in solution a greater or less quantity of air, earthy salts, and organic matter, and consequently it introduces these subjects into the interior of the plant, which is either benefited or injured according as they are proper for its nutrition or as they exert an injurious influence upon its organs. 6. The liquids thus absorbed by the roots constitute the ascending sap, which rises through the stem to reach the leaves. 7. The ascent of the sap is always effected through the ligneous body, and it is remarked that it takes place more actively through the alburnum than through the perfect wood. 8. It is not known with certainty by what way the absorbed liquids rise up in this manner. Many botanists 
think that it is only by the intercellular passages. Others believe that it is by the vessels. And in fact, if we place the roots of a plant in colored water, we are not long in perceiving that the vessels of the stem assume the same color, which seems to indicate that it is through these tubes that the liquids mount up toward the leaves. Nevertheless, under ordinary circumstances, we find these vessels empty, or at least filled with air, and it would seem that it is chiefly through their interior that the air, absorbed by the roots, rises in the stem of the plant. 9. The rapidity and force with which the ascent of sap takes place are sometimes extremely great. In the experiments made upon this subject, it has been shown that a branch of an apple tree cut across and surmounted by a tube raised water contained in the latter several feet in the space of some hours. And what are called vine tears is nothing but the ascending sap which escapes in abundance when the plant is trimmed. In other experiments made to ascertain the force with which the sap mounts in the grapevine, it was found to be sometimes so great as to sustain the weight of a column of water over forty feet in height. 10. The circumstances that have most influence upon the ascent of sap are heat and light. Of exhalation and respiration. 11. To render it fit for the purpose of nutrition, the ascending sap undergoes in the interior of the plant considerable changes. These changes are the result of two important phenomena, namely, exhalation and respiration. 12. The leaves are the chief seat of these two functions, and must be regarded as their special organs. We will now study their structure. Of leaves. 13. The leaves of vascular plants are the lateral appendages of the stem, formed of more or less distinct fibers and cellular tissue, enclosing in its interior a great deal of green coloring matter. 14. The fibers of the leaf are the continuation of those of the stem, but ordinarily they contain more trachea. In general, they form at first a cylindrical fasciculus bundle, caniculated, that is, hollowed in a gutter on the opposite side, or laterally compressed, which is named petiole, or leaf stalk. Then they expand and join again to form the flat part called the blade or limb of the leaf. When the fibers separate immediately on springing from the stem, the leaf has no pedicel or petiole, and it is then said to be sessile, from the Latin sedio, I sit. The petiole of dicotyledonous plants is separated from the stem by an articulation or joint, that is, a line at which its tissue offers but little resistance, the cells and vessels of which it is composed being placed end to end instead of being mingled as usual. It is on account of this arrangement that the leaves fall when they fade, while those of which the limb or blade rises directly from the stem are destroyed only little by little and remain adherent at their base. The first are called caducus or articulate leaves, and to the second we give the name of persistent. The leaves of fir trees are persistent. 15. When all parts of the leaf are equally adherent to each other, it is named a simple leaf, whatever may be the divisions of its blade. For example, the leaves of the lilac, the ranunculus, of the vine, etc. See figures 17 to 57. Sometimes 
the same tail or peduncle supports several petioles, each of which is articulated upon this peduncle, as it itself is upon the stem, and then this assemblage is called a compound leaf. Examples of compound leaves are seen in the sensitive plant, the leaves of the acacia, of the chestnut, etc. See figures 58 to 74. 16. The fibers, by expanding the limb, constitute the nerves of the leaf, and the cellular tissue lodged between these bundles of fibers, thus ramified, constitutes the parenchyma of the leaf. 17. The form of the leaf depends primarily upon the disposition of the nerves. In general, the nerves expand on a single plane, so as to form a plate or membrane with two surfaces, a superior and an inferior. But they sometimes ramify in all directions, and then give rise to leaves characterized by being thick, cylindrical, triangular, or swelled, as we observe in certain fleshy plants. The large nerves that arise immediately from the petiole are called primary nerves, figures 25 and 26. Those which arrive from the latter are secondary nerves, figure 28. We sometimes give the name of tertiary nerves, figure 43, to those ramifications which spring from the secondary nerves, and we apply the name of veins of the leaf to those terminal divisions of the nerves which are visible to the eye, but too small to make any projection on the surface. The veins are merely a continuation of the nerves, and both are constituted of the same fibers and vessels. It must not be supposed from the names that have been arbitrarily given them that these parts are similar in function to those parts of animals of the same name. 18. Sometimes the leaf presents one or more primary nerves which diverge in a straight line from the base of the blade and give rise to more slender nerves that separate from each other following a straight line and forming an angle with the first, figure 28. At other times the principal nerves are curved from their base, figure 34. 19. We give the name of angular nerve leaves to those in which the primary and secondary nerves are straight and form angles with each other, figure 26, and we call those curvy nerve leaves in which the primary nerves are curved, figures 37 and 43. The first belong to exogenous or dicotyledonous plants, and the second to endogenous or monocotyledonous plants. Monocotyledonous, from the Greek monos, single, and cotyledon, seed lobe, applied to plants that have but one seed lobe or cotyledon in the embryo. 20. The angular nerve leaves present four principal arrangements. Sometimes they are penny nerve, that is, provided with a middle nerve, called also midrib, which is a prolongation of the petiole, and which gives off to the right and left secondary nerves like the feathers of a pin. For example, the olive leaf, figure 22, the leaf of the yoke elm, and of the beech tree. Sometimes they are palmy nerve, that is, provided with several primary nerves, which separate from each other at the base of the blade, like the divisions of a fan, figure 28. For example, the leaf of the grapevine, which has five primary nerves, and that of the mallows, in which we count seven or even nine. The number of these nerves is always unequal, and that of the middle appears to be the prolongation of the petiole, pelty nerve, figure 45, that is, provided with nerves that radiate on an oblique plane 
relatively to the petiole, so as to constitute a sort of disc or shield placed upon its peduncle, foot, for example, the leaf of the nasturtium. And in others again, they are pedally nerve, that is, having a very short central nerve or midrib, from which spring two largely developed lateral nerves, the ramifications of which are very small towards the external side, edge, of the leaf, and very strong towards the center of the blade. Like the leaves of the fetid hellebore, figure 72, and some of the arums, for example. 21. The curvy nerve leaves, in general, have a great number of slightly projecting nerves, which at most generally ramify near their summit, and are often nearly parallel to the greater part of their length. For example, the leaves of the narcissus, and fig. Figure 37. 22. It sometimes happens that the space comprised betwixt the nerves is not filled by cellular tissue, which produces a very singular arrangement. The leaf is then full of holes, and resembles a trellis work, for example the leaves of Hydrogeton fenestralis, or the holes are irregular, as we see in the leaves of the Dracontium pertussum. 23. At other times, the cellular tissue which surrounds the nerves is spread out in such a way as to completely unite them to their utmost extremity, in which case the leaf is said to be entire, for example the leaf of the lilac and of the olive figures 22, 52, and 53. But, between these two very different modes of conformation, there is a great number of intermediate degrees. Sometimes the parenchyma completely unites all the ramifications of a secondary nerve, but does not extend between the different nerves that arise from the primary nerve, so that the blade is divided into several segments, or lobes. Sometimes these lobes are joined at the base, or as far as the middle of their length, and then the leaf is said to be partite, or divided, and the intervals between the lobes are called fissures, figure 32. According to the number of these fissures or divisions, the terms trifid, quinquifid, etc. are used. In some cases, this junction is complete, but the parenchyma, which separates the last nerves, does not extend entirely to their extremity, and the edges of the leaf are then dentate, as in the rose, figure 47. When these small marginal divisions are rounded instead of being pointed, they are called crenulations, and the leaf is said to be crenulate. Figure 41. 24. The two surfaces of the leaf are ordinarily covered with an epidermis, which often has hairs upon the nerves, and stomata on the parenchyma. These appendages and orifices are, in general, especially numerous on the inferior surface, and on this account, it is almost always paler than the superior surface of the leaf. Sometimes there are no stomata on the superior surface, and the arrangement of the cells of the parenchyma is not the same as beneath. In the thickness of the leaf there are ordinarily cavities, or intracellular lacunae, which contain air and communicate externally through stomata. Figures 9 and 10. Sometimes we also find in the parenchyma glands or reservoirs of the proper juices. Parenthetic remark. The distribution of the vascular tissue through the limb of the leaf is termed its venation or nervation, because the course of the vessels, of which these nerves are made up, have been supposed to bear some resemblance to the distribution of veins and nerves in certain parts of the animal structure. The bundles of vessels, constituting the nerves, maintain nearly a parallel course in their passage through the petiole, and are closely condensed together, 
but on arriving at the limb they separate, and as we have seen, are distributed in various ways. It will be observed that they may all be referred to one or other of two classes, called the angular nerve and curvy nerve arrangement. End of parenthetic remark. 25. The position of the leaves on the stem and branches varies in different plants, and furnishes very useful characteristics to botanists for the distinction of species. Sometimes they are opposite, that is, they rise in pairs at the same point from two sides of the stem or peduncle, figure 70. Sometimes they are verticulate, that is, grouped three or more together around the same part of the stem, and at other times they are alternate, that is, they arise separately at different points. 26. It is remarked also that opposite leaves are almost always so arranged that the different pairs cross each other. When they touch each other at the base, instead of arising from the opposite sides of the plant, they are called gemini, or geminate leaves. 27. On the stems of many plants, we observe on both sides of the leaf small organs named stipules, which seem to be very analogous to leaves, but their nature is not fully ascertained. Figure 16. S. They are only found in the dicotyledonous plants, and they sometimes resemble little leaves, at others scales. Parenthetic remark. Whatever arises from the base of a petiole, or of a leaf, if sessile, occupying the same space, and attached to each side, is considered a stipule. The appearance of this organ is so extremely variable, some being large and leaf-like, others being mere rudiments of scales, that botanists are obliged to define it by its position and not by its organization. Stipules, the margins of which cohere in such a way that they form a membranous tube sheathing the stem, are called ochre. Example, the rhubarb. Lindley. End of parenthetic remark. 28. The filamentous appendages, known under the name of tendrils, which twine themselves around neighboring bodies, serve to sustain weak and climbing plants, are frequently petioles or stipules, modified in a particular manner, but they are also often formed by the peduncle of flowers that have proved abortive in development. 29. According to their duration on the stem, the leaves are caduous, when they fall early, as in the plane tree, deciduous, when they fall before the new leaf appears, as in the horse chestnut and most other trees, marcescent, when they wither before falling, as in the oak and many other trees, persistent or evergreen, sempervirens, when they remain on the vegetable one winter or longer, as the ivy, the pine, the myrtle, the common laurel, etc. Plants of this kind are called evergreens. The various shapes of leaves and the names given to them, as well as the variety of their margins, may be seen in the following. Examples of the forms of simple leaves. The side or edge of the leaf in which the petiole is inserted is termed the base, and the opposite extremity the apex of the leaf. A linear leaf folium lineari, figure 17, folium, Latin, a leaf, lineari, Latin, line-shaped, the two edges straight and equidistant throughout, except at the two extremities, the aster linearifolus, the star-flower, as well as Indian corn and the grasses generally have leaves of this kind. When it embraces the stem, it is vaginate, or sheathing. A subulate leaf, folium subulatum, figure 18, Subulate from the Latin, subula, and all, all-shaped. Linear at bottom, but gradually lessening toward the top, and ending acute. The fascum subulatum, 
one of the mosses and the jonquil have a leaf of this description. An acerose leaf, from the Latin acer, a needle, in the form of a needle, is seen on pines. It is linear acuminate. An obtuse leaf, folium obtusum, figure 19, blunt pointed. The apex is broader than the base and forms the segment of a circle. The primrose has a leaf of this kind. An obcordate leaf, folium obcordatum, figure 20. The Latin word ob is prefixed to technical terms to indicate that a thing is inverted. Obcordate means inversely chordate, see figure 51, the notch being at the apex instead of the base of the leaf. Example, oxalis acetosella, sheep sorrel. An emarginate leaf, folium emarginatum, figure 21. Emarginate from the Latin e, from, and margo, margin, or edge, notched, having a notch at the end. Example, the geranium emarginatum. When the notch or sinus is very obtuse, it is said to be retuse, or almost emarginate. A lanceolate leaf, folium lanceolatum, figure 22, lance-shaped, as in the olive, narrowly oblong and tapering to each end. The peach tree has leaves of this description. An acute leaf, folium acutum, figure 23, sharp-pointed, terminating in an acute point without tapering suddenly. The solidago odora, an aromatic plant, is an instance. A cetaceo acuminate leaf, folium cetaceo acuminatum, figure 24, from the Latin ceta, a bristle. The point of the leaf terminated by the straight, bristle-like projection. The Quercus fellows, willow-leafed oak, is an example. Leaves are mucuronate, from the Latin mucro, in the genitive mucuronus, a sharp point, when an obtuse leaf terminates in a short, rigid point, formed by the projection of the midrib. Cuspidate, from the Latin cuspus, the point of a spear or other weapon, when it is more generally prolonged into a rigid point. Pungent, when it terminates in a hard, sharp point, like the leaves of thistles. Awned, aristate, from the Latin arista, a beard of wheat, when it terminates in a long, hard bristle or beard. An acuminate leaf, folium acuminatum, figure 25, from the Latin acumen, a point. It has an extended termination, and in this respect differs from the lanceolate leaf. The cornus, alternifolia, and reed are examples. This figure, 25, and the following, 26, show the primary nerves, which arise directly from the petiole and midrib. A hastate leaf, folium hastatum, figure 26, from the Latin hasta, a spear or halbert, halbert-shaped. Triangular, with lobes projecting perpendicularly to the petiole. The polygonum hastatum and bittersweet are examples. This leaf is an instance of an angular nerve leaf. A sagittate leaf, folium sagittatum, figure 27, from the Latin sagitta, an arrow, a leaf resembling the head of an arrow. The lobes at the base are elongated and scarcely diverged from the petiole. Example, polygonum sagittatum, called tear thumb, and turkey seed. A palmatolobate leaf, folium palmatolobum, figure 28, from the Latin palma, palm of the hand, having lobes which give it some resemblance to the hand. This figure illustrates a palmy nerve leaf. Example, the liquid amber styrocifera, called sweet gum. 
A palmate leaf, folium palmatum, figure 29. Hand-shaped, divided nearly to the insertion of the petiole into oblong loaves of similar size, but leaving a space entire like the palm of the hand. Examples, the viola palmata, the passion flower, and castor plant. Also, the red and sugar maples. A trilobate leaf, folium trilobatum, figure 30, from the Latin trace, three, a leaf formed of three lobes, the margins of which are rounded. A lyrate leaf, folium lyratum, figure 31, from the Latin lyra, a lyre. A leaf supposed to resemble the shape of a lyre. It is cut into several transverse segments, generally larger towards the extremity of the leaf, which is rounded, as in salvia lyrata, lyre-leaved sage, and garden radish. A sinuate or sinuose leaf, folium sinuatum, figure 32, a leaf having deep fissures or sinuses, bending in and out. Sinus, the bays or recesses formed by the lobes of leaves or other bodies, are so called. Example, the argemony mexicana. A doubly serrate leaf, folium duplicato serratum, figure 33, from the Latin serra, a saw, having teeth like a saw, the larger teeth being notched, also with teeth. See figure 48. Figure 33 shows the secondary nerves arising from the primary. A repand leaf, folium repandatum, figure 34, from the Latin repandus, bent. A leaf having a margin undulated and unequally dilated is so called. Example, the hydrocotyle. An amplexicol leaf, folium amplexicol, figure 35, from the Latin amplecto, I embrace, and collis, stem, stem embracing. A leaf bract whose base projects on each side so as to clasp the stem with its lobes. Example, papaver somniferum. A conate or double perfoliate or doubly amplexicoli leaf, folium conatum, 36, from the Latin con, together, and natus, grown, joined together at the base. Example, eupatorium perfoliatum, bone set. A perfoliate leaf, folium perfoliatum, figure 37, from the Latin per, through, and folium, leaf. A leaf having the stem running through it. The annexed figure, 37, is an illustration of a curvy nerve leaf. Example, Ovularia perfoliata, or bellwort. A pandurate leaf, folium panduratum, figure 38, from the Latin pandus, bent or bowed inward in the middle. Fiddle-shaped. It is also termed panduriform. It is oblong, broad at the two extremities, and contracted in the middle. Example, convolvulus panduratus, Virginia bindweed, and convolvulus imperati, native of Egypt, Italy, etc., a runcinate leaf, folium runcinatum, figure 39, from the Latin runcina, a large saw, to saw timber. Example, leontidum taraxicum, common dandelion. Dandelion, a corruption of the French, dent de lion, lion's tooth. An undulate leaf, folium undulatum, figure 40, from the Latin undula, a little wave, having the edges irregularly waved. Example, Asclepius obtusifolia, a crenate leaf, folium crenatum, figure 41, having rounded teeth, which are not directed towards either extremity of the leaf, 
as in the garden pink, ground ivy, and heartsease. Crenulate, finely crenate, some leaves are doubly crenate, that is, bicrenate. Example, the Quercus prinus, chestnut oak of Pennsylvania. A lobate leaf, folium lobatum, figure 42, divided more deeply than toothed or dentate, by somewhat obtuse incisions of an uncertain depth. Each portion is termed a lobe. The number of lobes is sometimes specified. Example, the Lyrodendron tulipifera, or tulip tree, also called poplar, canoe wood, sugar maple. A reniform leaf, folium reniform, figure 43, from the Latin ren, kidney, and forma, form, shape, kidney-shaped. A short, broad, round leaf with a sinus or hollow at the base. This figure shows the tertiary nerves springing from the secondary. Example, a serum canadensi, colt's foot. A spatulate leaf, folium spatulatum, figure 44, from the Latin, spathula, a broad slice or knife to spread plasters, oblong or obversely ovate, with lower part much attenuated. Example, the polygala lutea, a peltate leaf, folium peltatum, figure 45, from the Latin, pelta, a shield, where the petiole is inserted into the middle of the leaf on the underside, like the arm of a man holding a shield. This figure, 45, is also an illustration of a peltinerf leaf. Example, the common nasturtium, a deltoid leaf, folium deltoides, figure 48, from the Greek letter delta and eidos, resemblance. Example, populus nigra, a dentate leaf, folium dentatum, figure 47, from the Latin dens, a tooth, the edge having horizontal, distant teeth. This term, as well as the following, refers only to the edge or margin of the leaf, without regard to its general form. Example, populus grandidentata, a serrate leaf, folium serratum, figure 48, from the Latin serra, sole, the edge being cut into notches, like saw teeth, ending in sharp points, which incline towards the apex of the leaf. The nettle, rose, and peach are examples. A rhomboid leaf, folium rhomboidium, figure 49, rhomb-shaped. A rhomb, in geometry, is a four-sided figure having its opposite sides equal. When the angles are right angles, it becomes a square. An auriculate or eared leaf, folium auriculatum, figure 50, from the Latin auricula, a little ear. It has two small rounded lobes projecting at the base. The magnolia auriculata and rumex acetosella are examples. A chordate leaf, folium cordatum, figure 51, from the Latin cor, a heart, heart-shaped, ovate, with two rounded lobes at the base. Example, the pentaderia cordata and common morning glory. Obcordate is the chordate reversed, the sinus and lobes being at the summit instead of the base of the leaf. See figure 20. An obovate leaf, folium obovatum, figure 52, from the Latin ovum, egg. The reverse of ovate, egg-shaped, with the base broader than the apex, and the length greater than the breadth. See figure 20. Example, the arbutus uvi ursi. An elliptical or oval leaf, folium ellipticum, figure 53, having a regular outline resembling an ellipse. The curves of both ends are alike, and it is longer than it is wide. 
Example, the magnolia glauca, common magnolia or beaver tree. An orbiculate leaf, folium orbiculatum, figure 54, from the Latin orbis, an orb, having a circular outline. Example, the glycine tomentosa. A cuneate or cuneiform leaf, folium cuneiform, figure 55, from the Latin cuneus, a wedge, wedge-shaped, broad and obtuse at the summit, and tapering gradually almost to a point at the base. Example, the Quercus nigra, the true black oak, or blackjack. A partite leaf, folium partitum, is one deeply divided nearly to the base, as Heliborus viridus, and according to the number of its divisions, it is bipartite, tripartite, or multipartite. A multipartite leaf, folium multipartitum, figure 26, from the Latin, multus, many, and pars, part, much divided having deep and very distinct divisions. A liciniate leaf, folium liciniatum, figure 57, from the Latin licinia, a lappet, a separate fold of a garment. Divided by deep incisions, the liciniae, or parts, being quite slender and numerous. Examples, the dentaria liciniata and the rudbeckia liciniata. Also, the lower leaves of the clematis flamula, sweet virgin's bower. End of lesson three, part one.